Okay, hello everyone and welcome to the Actus Podcast, Talking CDI, the nation's only program dedicated to the clinical documentation integrity profession. The Actus Podcast is a bi-weekly program dedicated to bringing you closer to the difference makers in CDI, sharing the latest news and information relevant to the CDI profession and to Actus. Today, Wednesday, May 26th, marks our 180th program. Today's featured Actus solution is Actus Online, CDI Summer Retreat. Um, I've been reading this commercial the last few shows, so I won't read it again. I'm going to add a little, a little bit here. Uh, I'm really looking forward to this program. We've got a great event lined up. Um, it's the official first week of summer, June 23rd through the 25th. This is a virtual event, but we're making it as fun as we can, hence the little frisbee there. Uh, we've got a couple keynotes that are joining us. We're going to be doing a virtual cocktail hour. Uh, the platform allows for live screen, uh, live screen, live stream discussion strings, where folks can talk to each other uh, real time, share pictures, talk best practice. Uh, the the one of the cool things about this program too is that we're sharing CDI information, but also things like professional development and um, some skills to help us cope from the recent disaster of the COVID-19 pandemic. So I hope you can join us. Uh, we're, we're planning and preparing hard for this event right now. Again, check it out at uh, hcmarketplace.com. So my name is Brian Murphy, Director of Actus, the Association of Clinical Documentation Integrity Specialists, and I'm your host for today's program, E&M Guidelines Changes. I'm joined today by my co-host at left, Sharm Brody. Sharm is an instructor for the CDI boot camps and a subject matter expert for us here at Actus. She has more than 35 years of experience in the healthcare industry. Uh, she was a former consultant providing program audits, implementation. She's implemented and overseen CDI departments in both large and small community hospitals. Member of our certification committee, we're up busy updating that right now, Sharm, as we speak. Um, you've probably seen her as well on our many articles for our Actus Journal and the like. I want to welcome her back to the show. So welcome, Sharm. Hi, Brian. Hello. All right. And next, I want to introduce today's special guest. This is his first appearance on the podcast. We have with us today Dave Friedenson, MD. Uh, Dr. Friedenson is the Chief Medical Officer and the Compliance Officer of Reventix. He is also a past president of, Col of the Colorado uh, ASEP, or American College of Emergency Physicians, a member of several ASEP and EDPMA National Task Forces on Medicaid, Network Adequacy and Insurer Issues. Um, he served as a board member and as a compliance officer for CarePoint PC from 2009 to 2014. In his current role as the CMO of Reventix, he helps in improvement of CPT and ICD coding and documentation, undertaking compliance audits and leading policy development initiatives. Stays very active with uh, ASEP. Um, a little bit of his medical background. He has over 25 years of clinical experience at level two, three, and four trauma centers. In addition to oversight of emergency medicine, hospitals, trauma, urgent care, on and on. I wanna welcome him to the program. Welcome Dr. Friedenson. Thank you, Brian and Sharm. Look forward to the discussion. Yeah, absolutely. Appreciate you joining us. As I always do, I will start with a poll question related to today's topic. I'm going to go ahead and launch that 
and you should be seeing it on your screen in just a moment. Today we're asking our listeners, is helping physicians improve their E&M documentation, aka professional billing, part of your CDI efforts? Your options are yes, it's uh, part of your work or your education, a regular part. Maybe you, you would describe it as somewhat, perhaps it's an indirect or minor focus of what you do in your CDI role. Uh, no, it's not, not applicable or other. Again, we're asking today, is helping physicians improve their E&M or evaluation and management documentation uh, part of your CDI efforts and your options are yes, somewhat, no, uh, excuse me, no, not applicable or other. And I'm seeing we've got about 70% of our audience that have cast their vote. So I'm gonna go ahead and close this out and we will return to this poll in just a few minutes. All right, um, as I mentioned, Dr. Dave Friedenson is our special guest. Dr. Friedenson, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for being a part of the podcast today. Um, it's great to be here. Yeah, I'm thrilled to have you on. So, you know, uh, we were just chatting before the show a, a little bit about your background and um, you've been involved with this quite some time. So I'm hoping you can maybe set the stage for us a little bit for many years. Um, more than 20, if you look at the, the name of them. The, we've been bound by the 1995-1997 Evaluation and Management Guidelines. So can you set the stage for what you know the, these, these E&M guidelines were and sort of, and then getting into right into today's topic, what, what some of the changes are coming for uh, in, in 2021? Sure, Brian. So, you know, I think, um starting with a little uh, anecdote. When I uh, first started in medicine a little over a quarter century ago, it's hard for me to say that. Um, but uh, my, you know, if I had a patient with say appendicitis, my chart could look like a uh, uh, patient presents with right lower quadrant abdominal pain. Uh, they're tender in the right lower quadrant with guarding. Uh, their CAT scan shows appendicitis and I called a surgeon and admitted them for appendicitis. And that could be the whole chart. And then, you know, uh, CMS started doing these audits and, uh, um, you know, some of the big academic centers uh, got uh, caught sort of overcoding um, and weren't following real guidelines. And so uh, the E&M guidelines from 95 and then revised in 97 came out to really um, set the flow for uh, what needs to be documented to, uh, you know, to get credit for the level of service that you're uh, performing. Um, and those E&M guidelines, when they were published back in 1995, uh, you know, they were trying to quantify and codify how much work a physician performed uh, based on their documentation. And then the physicians would be paid fairly by payers like CMS and insurers. Um, and then, you know, they, CMS and insurers could uh, look at the documentation and see that uh, the physicians were actually performing that work. Um, unfortunately, um, the guidelines were really developed by, mainly by office-based physicians and didn't really represent uh, specialists and uh, hospital-based physicians and the work that they're doing. Uh, so for the last 26 years, those of us who practice at the hospital, uh, and I'm an emergency physician, so, uh, you know, people like me, 
um, have had to document uh, more than what may be relevant for a given visit to arrive at that correct level of service uh, that reflects the, the work that we performed. Um, and, you know, a good example of that, uh, take the comprehensive history and physical exam that uh, came from those 95 and 97 guidelines um, and doesn't really reflect the complexity of a patient uh, with, for instance, no complaints, but was involved in a rollover motor vehicle crash at 100 miles per hour. Um, how do I get four HPI elements out of a patient who um, rolled their car but feels fine, uh, but is certainly at 100 miles an hour with a rollover at a high risk for having uh, multiple complex injuries uh, from their from their motor vehicle crash. Um, and so, you know, what the 2021 guidelines tried to do um, was say, okay, we get it. The comprehensive history and physical isn't always relevant. It's not necessarily relevant what your family history is when you roll your car. Um, and so um, what they did was they took the history and physical out and they said, you know, physicians can perform the parts of their history and physical that are necessary. Um, but then beyond that, what really matters is let's get the docs to actually put on paper what's going on in their heads. Um, and uh, so, you know, when I think about that patient, I'm thinking, you know, could they have a, a torn thoracic aorta? Could they have an intracranial hemorrhage? Um, and I need to document that in my chart to demonstrate that these are potentially life-threatening injuries that I'm looking for. Um, and then other things, you know, um, uh, it, it sort of allows us to take that, uh, the superfluous information out of the chart that might drown out what's really going on. Um, and so I think it really actually makes for a better chart uh, so that the doc who sees the patient two days later can know what I was thinking when I saw the patient in the emergency department and did or didn't do uh, some uh, big workup or small workup to sort out what was going on with the patient. Right. Well, it sounds like you're pretty positive about the, the change um, that, we, that we're seeing now. Yeah, I think it'll be uh, positive for physicians and for patients and for patient care. Uh, um, you know, it uh, allows the doc to really focus on uh, what's important, getting it into the chart. What's, I mean, you know, it's not, I'm not going to stop doing a physical exam because I don't have to document the comprehensive exam. I'm going yep. to document what's relevant and leave out what's not. Great. Sounds good. Yeah, I actually like the way you explained it. So let's take a step back even further. Can you explain how these documentation elements will directly impact the physician billing and revenue? And then uh, why the E&M guidelines and the CPT codes are important for physicians? Sure. That's a mouthful. Uh, yeah, <laughs> great question though, Sharm. Um, so, um, you know, CMS and other payers set the reimbursement for physician services and uh, patient visits based on the medical necessity um, of the visit and that the, that sort of translates into a level of service. And these are represented by the CPT codes. Um, the new rules for 2021 only apply to office or outpatient codes. It's almost like a trial for the next two years to see how it goes. Um, and then uh, likely will be extended if it goes well uh, to the 2023 guidelines for uh, in 2023 for the rest of the um, E&M code set. Um, and so um, the reason that they do this is that uh, CMS and by extension, most of the private payers and other government payers reimburse physicians based on that C CPT level. Um, and in order to get credit for a given level, your documentation has to support the level. Um, 
And then, you know, this translates. So if I see a patient at a given level and I document it correctly, um, then uh, that results in a CPT code uh, at a given level. And then the reimbursement for that is, uh, is set by the AMA um, based on uh, the relative value of that code. Uh, and for instance, um, a uh, level three office follow-up visit has uh, um, RVUs assigned to it or 2.65 RVUs for that level three office follow-up. And a level five new patient, which you can imagine a new patient requires more work uh, and uh, more thinking uh, because you have to sort of, you don't have your office notes, you've never seen the patient before. Uh, and that has about twice as many uh, RVUs or relative value as the, uh, as the level three follow-up. Um, and then, you know, CMS will pay a specific amount based on that RVU level. Uh, and, um, and then insurance contracts are often based on those levels as well that are translated from the relative value of the code. So getting the code right is important for compliance, for reimbursement. Um, and, uh, and looking at the new guidelines, you know, they're designed so that the amount of complexity, the amount of work uh, that's done, the amount of thinking and the amount of time that's done uh, is really what sets the level of service rather than uh, can I do a comprehensive history and physical on every single patient. Right. Okay. Thank you. Yeah, good stuff. So Dr. Friedenson, I'm sure our audience is sitting here listening and um, probably starting to ask, you know, it's, it's funny, the, I, I guess the biggest, one of the biggest divides that I have seen in, in the industry, coding billing is this, enormous divide between physician and hospital um, reimbursement, right? So physicians are always wondering what's in it for me when they get their CDI query. Um, and maybe our audience is wondering, well, why do I need to know about physician E&M if it's, if it's a little bit different and it is going to benefit the, the physician's professional fee billing, but really makes no impact on the hospital. The, I'm, I'm sure people are wondering that. Um, you know, maybe you could talk just a little bit about what are the benefits for doing this? Are there some tangible benefits for the hospital, but, or if not, is it, is it, you know, goodwill? Is it, is it getting the physician engagement and seeing that if they do improve these documentation elements that could help both sides of the fence. Um, are, are, are there tangible benefits or intangible benefits to helping physicians improve their their E&M documentation? Sure. I mean, that's a, a great question and we can sort of translate it into real world examples. Um, but, you know, the physicians, um, so in general, the hospital gets reimbursed, you know, five to 10 times for a visit what the physician gets reimbursed. Um, which makes sense because the physician's uh, support staff and building are obviously much smaller than the hospitals. So oftentimes, you know, we focus on uh, providing feedback that impacts the hospital's correct coding and, uh, and reimbursement because that return on investment is much higher uh, since the, you know, each visit is, uh, is much higher reimbursed. Um, but if we think about it from a, a physician standpoint, you know, we work with uh, a lot of inner city clinics and hospitals to try and provide good feedback um, to their uh, physicians um, because every every last dollar really matters. Um, you know, many of their patients have Medicaid or no insurance at all. Um, we see that with a lot of our hospital-based practices. Um, and uh, so, you know, if they 
have downcoded charts or they are undercoding their charts, um, then uh, that really can impact that uh, smaller income even more uh, and, uh, and you know, potentially make them close their doors. Um, so, um, you know, once those patients suddenly have no access to uh, primary care uh, or specialists uh, because um, they can't keep the doors open, uh, then patients start having complications. And I think, you know, a good example would be, uh, for instance, uh, a 45-year-old mother of uh, three teenagers with diabetes and hypertension. Um, and uh, if that clinic at the hospital closes uh, because there wasn't enough reimbursement uh, from the correct coding uh, and correct documentation, she loses her access to her prescriptions, her blood sugar and blood pressure rise, and suddenly she's having chest pain. Uh, and uh, now her only option is really to head to the emergency department because her doctor isn't in anymore. Um, and uh, she ends up with a STEMI and CHF with an ejection fraction of 20%. Uh, and now she's permanently disabled and her teenagers lose, uh, she and her teenagers lose their access to safe housing. Uh, they have trouble with school. Um, and uh, you can see how this sort of snowballs into uh, lifelong effects because the hospital wasn't able to keep its clinic open. Um, and uh, if we can provide good feedback uh, as CDIS uh, folks to those um, uh, to those physicians so that they can document the correct key medical decision making elements. In this case, you know, was her diabetes stable or unstable? Uh, were there social determinants of health that caused her to uh, not be able to fill her prescriptions? Um, and, uh, you know, if we can get them to document those things and then they can get appropriately reimbursed for that level four visit instead of a level three visit, then uh, maybe we can keep those doors open, prevent her from having to have her MI in the first place and uh, uh, her kids go on uh, with the tools to succeed in life. Mm -hmm. Love the example. Thank you, Dr. Friedson. That, that, that ties it together, and especially as we're seeing you know, hospitals getting closer and closer, merging with, with clinics and the uh, the whole piece coming together here that that certainly makes a lot of sense. It did. I actually like that. And I was going to ask you to give a clinical example in from the acute care setting that a CDI could actually get involved in that would help with the NM levels. Um, you've spoken a little bit about it, but if you have another example, that would be great. Sure. I mean, let's uh, expand a little bit on. Uh, so let's call her Ms. Smith, and her doctor is Dr. Jones. And uh, let's say we're trying to keep that clinic from closing. So um, she's diabetic, she's hypertensive, uh, and we're seeing her, Dr. Jones is seeing her a year before her MI uh, for her diabetes and hypertension. And he notices that she hasn't filled her prescription. Uh, so uh, he re-prescribes them, talks to her about uh, how he can help to get her prescriptions filled. He checks her blood sugar, uh, her hemoglobin A1C and her renal function. Uh, but unfortunately, Dr. Jones only documents that uh, the patient has a history of hypertension and diabetes. He documents that he sent some labs uh, and uh, he doesn't mention the prescriptions um, or the discussion about uh, how to get them filled. Um, so as documented, this would actually only be a level three outpatient office visit um, because he left all those things out. But if we can give feedback uh, to Dr. Jones um, and uh, tell him, you know, hey, let's let's document uh, better are those conditions two stable chronic conditions or uh, was one of them uh, out of control or was one of them having exacerbation or progression or side effect and uh, when you ordered labs did you order one lab or did you order three labs and um, and you know 
it sounds like she has these chronic conditions. Does, did you write some prescriptions for her? Did you uh, start prescriptions, continue prescriptions? Um, and, uh, you know, if we can get him to document those things, then now we actually have uh, appropriately justified a level four visit. Um, and, uh, and we can get to the right level of service uh, based on that medical necessity. Um, and, um, you know, just from a revenue integrity standpoint, so if Dr. Jones sees 80 Medicaid patients a week, um, that uh, level three versus four uh, potentially translates into $3,000 more per week in revenue uh, that Dr. Dr. Jones has been losing uh, over the last year. And you can see how that could translate into Dr. Jones having enough money that he could actually hire a nurse practitioner and take care of more patients and uh, um, provide some great preventative care for the community that he's working in. That's great. Thank yeah. you. And that's a potentially large impact there when you ripple it across all the all the visits. Um, this has been great, Dr. Friedenson, really appreciate it. Maybe we could just sum up here. Um, you know, we have our audiences listening, as I mentioned, CDI professionals typically working in a hospital setting, but if they were interested in learning more about e the E&M guidelines changes, uh, any place you would direct them to or any other help you could offer them for sort of succinctly summarizing some of these changes for their, for their medical staff. Sure, I think that um, some great resources uh, uh, are the, um, you know, the AMA has uh, their guidelines, um, actually since their new guidelines, uh, anyone can access them, they're public domain right now, uh, right on the AMA website. And, uh, and that's a great resource for uh, at least getting the basics down uh, for the new 2021 guidelines. Uh, obviously, the AAPC uh, is good for CPT coding, mm -hmm. and then uh, some of the specialty societies uh, have their uh, own um, FAQ sections on the websites. Uh, ASEP uh, um, has a, a large section of uh, FAQs on uh, appropriate documentation for various uh, CPT codes, uh, including uh, some new 2021 uh, guideline F, uh, FAQs. Nice. Um, and then, you know, I think the key thing, if you're, if you want to sort of start making an impact, is um, is trying to convince physicians just to document what's going on in their head. You know, when I talk to physicians and teach physicians uh, how to document, um, I try not to teach them to document more because no physician wants to spend more time on their chart, uh, but uh, really document better. And it's really just translating what's going on in your brain in, onto the paper. We know that the physician was thinking something, but if they didn't get it on the paper, we can't really count it. Uh, and so just getting them to talk about all those things that are going on in their head about taking care of that patient either today or uh, what we're planning on for next week. Uh, you know, what did we do for the patient? Uh, did we do a workup? Did we not? Uh, did we write a prescription or, or an over-the-counter medication? What are we recommending? You know, what are the social factors that are really uh, impacting their, their health care? Um, so, you know, just really uh, talking to them and giving them that type of feedback when they have a sparse medical decision making uh, section of their chart, it's, uh, you know, getting them to expand on that to, to make it a better chart. So it's better understandable by the coder and better understandable by the uh, next provider who takes care of the patient. Excellent. Well, thank you very much. And I think you provided some great examples today that could be uh, a great scenario to put out there to make it even more tangible. All right. Thank you. Yeah. Let's go ahead and take a look at our poll question today. Again, we asked folks, I'm going to go ahead and share this.
um, is helping physicians improve their E&M documentation or AKA professional billing part of your CDI efforts? So more than half our audience say no, uh, 53%. But 40, a combined 43% are focusing on this to some degree, either it is part of their work or maybe it's an indirect focus of their work and are not applicable. Not all of our folks are working in the hospital setting or directly involved with E&M documentation. So wonder what you think here, Dr. Friedenson. Again, I know this is your first time on the show. A lot of our audience is working in that hospital setting, um, but surprised to see 53% no. We think there might be more of an opportunity here for folks. Yeah, uh, you know, um, I actually am a little surprised on the other side, which is good. Uh, I thought there would be more uh, saying no. Um, so it's good to see that uh, folks are uh, focusing a little bit on the physician education as well. As we talked about, the ROI is higher on the, um, you know, the DRG and the hospital side documentation. So uh, the physicians need the feedback and the physicians that, you know, I speak to when it's good feedback, they'd love that feedback. So uh, yeah, keep up those efforts and those who aren't doing it, uh, providing a little bit of feedback can definitely be uh, uh, well, well needed and uh, well used. All right. Any other thoughts on that, Sharon, before we move on? I was a little surprised. We started, and I'm trying to think back in 2008, we had a liaison that worked with us with the E&M, and I just thought it would actually grow a little bit faster, but it's nice to see that there is like almost 50% that are doing something, so that's good. Yeah, absolutely. All right, let's hop over to our In the News segment. So In the News is a regular segment of the show featuring the latest news and industry updates relevant to the CDI profession. I hate to be the bearer of, of bad news today. Um, if you haven't seen it, this was published on the Actus website about two weeks ago. Uh, it's a, a big announcement by the nation's largest private insurer, excuse me, private payer regarding the, uh, the coverage and payment for sepsis. So from our own website here again, United Healthcare has announced that effective July 1st, 2021, Medicare Advantage and commercial claims for sepsis-related treatment may be reviewed on a prepayment or post-payment basis. They'll be using their, their own sepsis clinical guidelines, which include the use of sepsis-3 criteria. I'm going to navigate over briefly to their site as well. Um, they have a headline's a little misleading. It says may be reviewed on a prepayment, but it's also post-payment, and it does say that right below. Um, they have a brief here. You, what, here's what you need to know section that might be helpful for you. There's, they're saying there's no change to the clinical guidelines themselves. Uh, if they can't validate the sepsis is present, they may adjust, deny or adjust um, that claim and the hospital may submit a corrected claim. And they have some further information here about if your claim is denied and visiting uhcprovider.com for uh, for more information. You know, this obviously is a big deal for our members here. Many of our members are still using the sepsis 2 criteria for, for various reasons. Some of them st are, are still very much um, of the opinion that it's better for early detection. But this is what we've got from United Healthcare. I'm sure it will increase some battles going forward here. Wondering what you think about this announcement, Dr. Friedenson. Um, 
you know, if you have any thoughts about United Healthcare's change here or, or sepsis three in general, we could probably spend an hour on that topic alone, but <laughs> right. if you have any, any advice here for our thoughts, for our members or listeners. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, uh, um, it's always dangerous when an insurer sets a clinically based uh, parameter um, that's brand new um, or, and really hasn't had an opportunity to um, uh, to undergo scrutiny um, to see if it's actually worth using uh, and then sets reimbursement based on that. Um, you know, one of the things about the sepsis three criteria is it actually uh, as you pointed out, um, no longer looks at the early detection, but really what's going on over time. Um, and so, you know, if I have a stellar team of uh, physician, nurse, and hospital team caring for a patient, and we do a great job, and we save the patient's life before they decompensate, now United Healthcare is saying that's not really sepsis because you saved their life instead of letting them get worse first. Uh, and to me, that just doesn't make sense. Uh, they both use the same resources. We just uh, did something better for the patient and now uh, can't be reimbursed for it. Um, and so I'm never a fan of these types of policies. You know, there's uh, certainly other policies that are similar where, um, uh, you know, if I, for instance, present to the emergency department with a swollen leg uh, and some chest pain, and I was concerned about a pulmonary embolus and a DVT, but it turns out all I had were a swollen leg and some chest pain and there was no PE or DVT. There are some insurers who uh, use policies uh, such as this to uh, deny that there was actually an emergency uh, needed because, well, it turns out you didn't have the life threat. Um, and so, you know, I think uh, uh, what makes more sense is reviewing a chart. And if it turns out that they didn't meet the medical necessity for uh, sepsis, then that's fine. You could certainly downcode it. But if you're going to do it on a pre-billing basis without really reviewing the uh, the clinical aspects of the chart from a clinician standpoint, I don't think that that type of a policy is uh, is fair for hospitals or clinicians. Right. I agree. It is this is the way the rules of the game are right now, but it is, it's, it's troubling to see private payers setting clinical practice here. Um, but that's what we've got. So sorry to be the bearer of bad news folks, but that's, yeah. that's what we've got here to work with going forward. Again, this is, this is United Healthcare and it's effective July 1st. All right, on a more positive note, um, just wrapping up with a brief Actus update. Um, May is Mental Health Awareness Month. I know we're closing out the month, but we here at Actus, uh, our leadership team shared some ideas for maintaining good day-to-day -day mental health, just some of the things that we do on our leadership page. So this is on actus.org. Uh, if you go to um, our leadership page, you will find it there. So our CDI editor, Carolyn Real, asked everyone to provide a short answer to the question, what do you do to maintain your mental health? I know probably like many of you, I'm, I've been working from home pretty much, well, entirely working from home since last March 13th when we closed our office and sent everyone home. And, you know, I just, I like to get out of the house once in a while, even if it's just to get a cup of coffee that I don't really need just to drive down the street. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a big reader as well of either f fiction and nonfiction and also just turning off my phone, especially the social media notifications and reaching out to real human beings can be a help. So if you're not 
paying attention to your own mental health, it's important. We know that folks have suffered. We've seen it from our active survey results during the isolation of the pandemic. Just a reminder to, uh, to take care of yourself, especially during this time of, uh, of, of May and the Mental Health Awareness Month. You know, it applies to your providers, but also yourselves. All right, that is going to do it for today's edition of the Actus Podcast. Again, I want to thank Dr. Friedenson for his great insight today into professional billing, not a topic we usually cover too deeply here, but it was excellent, well-received. Uh, for everyone else, we'll be back in two weeks for our next show, which is New Technology and Change Management. As a reminder, you can listen to the show recordings anytime on our website or via Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify. We try to upload the show the next day. It probably will be available tomorrow in our recording section. If you like today's show, if you have suggestions for future guests, ideas about the format of the show, I love getting your feedback. I've gotten many show ideas that way, so send me an email at bmurphy at actus.org. Well, take care, everyone. We'll see you back here again in two weeks.